In the great town of Granby, Colorado, a simmering feud boiled over into an explosive display of rage and machinery. Today, the tale of Marvin Hemar, known as the Killdozer, Hemar's armored bulldozer, tall through walls and wires, a man-made juggernaut on a mission against what he perceived as grave injustice. But beneath the wreckage lay a web of deception, and a man who claimed to fight for the little guy while harboring secrets that could shatter his underdog image. Today we're digging into the story that shocked a nation, unearthing the motivations and the myths that propelled one man to take his battle to the streets in the most literal and destructive way imaginable. Stay tuned as we uncover the truth and the tall tales of the Killdozer and the wrath of Marvin Hemar. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Decoding the Unknown. He means casual criminalist. Really should be better at his job. He has one job. As always, I'm your host, Simon. I'm here. What am I right to this case, Matt? Thank you, Matt. Is there to be a script? Killdozer, The Wrath of Marvin Haymar. I vaguely know this story because I'm pretty sure I've made a video about it before. When a guy, he gets like a steamroller or something like that. He turns it into a tank and goes in like on a rampage. I know, I know it's horrible. And like he ends up dead or something at the end, I think. But like, it is quite amusing. Like, the last episode I recorded was about a guy who killed, like, 150 children. So, <laughs> this is better, isn't it? Let's jump in. Get your bags and your pot, my friends, because we're going to Colorado. Oh, is Colorado one of those states where it's, like, it's all legal? That's, I mean, that's the, isn't it strange, like, America, of all the countries in the world, America, who are, like, just say no, what, 30 years ago, or whatever, and now, like, yeah, there's whole states where there's just, like, it's just totally legal. Oh, that's amazing. Or like legal on a state base. Apparently it's not legal federally, which I, I don't understand America. Like what's that about? Just every, it should be, I don't understand. Just make it legal. Why it doesn't hurt anyone. It probably will help because it will be less people like drinking, which is obvious, like seems to definitely be worse for you. And all that stuff, just like go green. <laughs> Known for its vast and beautiful plains, wide open grasslands, and its large and gorgeous mountain ranges, it's perhaps one of the most lovely places in all of the United States' Midwest. It's known for its ski resorts, with hundreds, even thousands, flogging to the mountains to have the time of their lives, flying down the slopes across that fresh white powder. I, I don't know how I feel. Like, skiing can be fun, but then it's also really dangerous. I'm not very good at it. So I'm always like, there's lots of people just like wishing, swishing down a mountain and all that stuff, and like getting injured. And I'm like, nah, I don't need that in my life. Like, it's not I, like it's one of those things that I don't enjoy enough to take the risk. Like, I, I, like my wife's really into skiing. She's much more into skiing, and she's like, can we go skiing this year? And I'm like, I don't really like skiing, <laughs> so we don't go skiing. And of course, as that first sentence indicates, it's quite known for being one of the first and most well-known states to legalize the devil's lettuce. Yes. For medicinal purposes, of course. Puff, puff, puff. Wait, is it only for medicinal purposes? Because, like, I thought there's also, like, plenty of places where it's legal for recreational purposes as well. Mostly California, right? You can just go into a shop and be like, I'll take some of your finest herb. Which sounds amazing. Yes, it's a wonderful place. And today we set our sights on the town of Granby within the Grand County of Colorado. Founded in 1904 with a population of 2,079. As of 2020, it's a quaint and sleepy town. Very Midwest, if you ask me. I'm not sure what's up with being Midwest. I've got a couple of American friends, and we'll always go out. And one of my friends, he's one of the friends, he's from Montana. And my other mates are always like, yeah, 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 Montana in the Midwest. He's like, it's not in the Midwest. And I'm like, wait, what's wrong with the Midwest? <laughs> 
but now I can already hear the questions coming. Well, Matt, this is lovely and all, but why are we here? Are you getting those kickbacks from the tourist board again? Well, no, not quite, at least not yet. I don't think Granby, with a population of 2,000 people, has much of a tourist board. Visit Granby! Well, no, not quite, at least not yet. No, for today we want to discuss the event that truly put Granby on the map and one of the most outlandish and bizarre crimes of the last 20 years. Now, picture this, if you will. The date is June the 4th, 2004, and most folks in town were just going about their business. However, that day would be disrupted, and in the most disruptive of fashions. Soon enough, the alarm of evacuation was sounded. Wait, they have evacuation alarms? This was something I discovered when I moved to Prague. It's like, you're just, like, hanging out the first... Is it the first Friday or first Thursday of every month? At midday, they test the emergency broadcast system, or whatever it's called. And this siren. Like, there's, there's speakers everywhere. And they'll just be like, or whatever the sound is. And then some guy will come on the radio and be like, this is a test of the earth, or whatever it is, you know? And it's like, okay. But we don't have that in the UK, as far as I'm aware. The authorities would do their best to get everyone out of harm's way, and thankfully they did. It was then, at 4.23pm, that the rumbling started. The rumbling of a large machine designed and fortified for devastation. A makeshift tank, a war machine, bent on causing as much mayhem as possible, and all because a man was at his wit's end. A man who had seen his life and livelihood torn to shreds before his very eyes. Wait, if I remember this correctly, wasn't he just upset about some bullshit zoning issue? And he just got really mad about it? Maybe there's more to this. There's probably more to this story. Because a guy just doesn't build a tank because someone was like, oh, you can't build your garage there. <laughs> not that I'm speaking from personal experience. <laughs> definitely not having a... <laughs> not having a... Not an argument. It's, definitely, it's not an argument. But like a conversation with my mate. We just demolished a garage on my property. And we want to build a new, bigger garage. Which, honestly, the last garage was such a piece of that it's like, we're just, it, it, everything's good. And they're like, oh, we want it further away from the fence than the last one. I'm like, well, I don't. <laughs> oh, it's fine. Everything will be fine. I don't really mind. Like, I just don't want it to be that far away because then it takes up too much of my garden. And I'm a selfish bastard. <laughs> I just want garden space. What's wrong with that? And I also don't have to chop down this really nice tree. It's, there's a walnut tree in the garden, which makes all these walnuts. And my builder's like, well, if you move it that far, it's going to like, we're going to have to lay a foundation. It's going to ruin all the roots and the tree will die. And I'm like, oh, I don't want the tree to die. I like the tree. I like walnuts. No one's interested, Simon. Move on. This is a story of revenge, a story of desperation, a story interspersed with boring stories from Simon's personal life. That's not in the script. I made that up, but it will be. And it's still to please keep watching. And it's still debated or listening if you're listening as a podcast. Oh my God, Simon, get on with it. Debated whether he was right or wrong to this day. This is the story of the infamous Killdozer. How can you not like a story that's called Killdozer? The man inside the machine. Let's first talk about the man at the center of this whole situation. Marvin John Hemar, known as Marv to his friends, was born on October the 28th, 1951, on a dairy farm in South Dakota. Not much is known about Marvin's early years, but at the age of 23, he joined the U.S. Air Force. Now, there's someone. My, my uh, cousin's in the U.S. Air Force. He's American. He's not flying planes or something. I think he works in the post office of the, of the U.S. Air Force. I don't think he does anymore. Actually, he probably doesn't anymore. But I haven't spoken to him in a while. But he was in the Air Force for, like, whatever an Air Force stint is. Now, as someone whose best friend used to be in the Air Force, I can tell you it's no picnic. Military training is hard and rigorous, and you have to be tough to undergo the strain of it and come out on the other side. Marvin did just that and was stationed at the Lowry Air Force Base in Denver, Colorado. Oddly enough, my, my American cousin 
was stationed at an air force base in the uk <laughs> he got to hang out with that side of the family a bit more he spent several years in the armed forces and he discovered that he had a talent for welding to say this would serve him greatly later on is a massive understatement in 1989 after getting out of the air force marvin moved to grand lake colorado about 16 miles or 26 kilometers away from granby it isn't clear why he decided on that specific location as he had no friends or family there at the time but we can speculate that it was because the property he bought was on the cheaper side he picked out a small tree-filled lot in a nice quiet area of the woods with two log cabins and a beautiful view that sounds awesome like i don't know living in the city Oh my god, Simon, do you have to go on? This is the problem when I record these on Monday morning. It's like I come back from a weekend of not recording anything, and it's like, let's tell some stories. Let's bore everyone with my personal life. But living in the woods would be. I live in a city, and it's just like, ah, oh, I have a little house in the woods. And it's like, oh my god, you just go out there, and it's just like, there's woods, there's a river. It's so peaceful. I'd live out there, except I got kids who need to go to school, and a wife who's like, someone I don't want to live in the middle of nowhere. And I'm like, oh, but why not? I'll go skiing. All we have to do is move to the countryside. It'll be a compromise. But I am going to retire out there. That's definitely the plan. <laughs> Got to get my wife on board with that plan, I guess. Today's video is brought to you by Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, which you know you've got too many of, don't you? It also monitors your spending, it helps you lower your, lower your bills, and it does it all in one fantastic place. Look, with Rocket Money, you can easily cancel subscriptions that you don't want with just the press of a button. You don't have to, like, some of the places make it so difficult to cancel it. It's like, oh, I just want to cancel my subscription. It's like, oh, you got over as a ring, don't you? And it's like, on the telephone? What is this? 1996? No, with Rocket Money, it's a one-click cancel. Boom. Done. Easy. They do all of the work for you. Rocket Money can even negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. That's incredible. I'd like all my bills lowered by 20%. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? Go get Rocket Money. Rocket Money also lets you monitor your expenses in one place. They recommend custom budgets based on your past spending, and they'll even send you notifications when you've reached your spending limits. With over 5 million users and counting, Rocket Money has helped save its customers an average of 700 and twenty dollars a year could be nice to have that much extra money in your pocket wouldn't it why not and one billion dollars in total savings so far that's fantastic look rocket money is where it's at you should go get it stop wasting money on things you don't use cancel those unwanted subscriptions and manage your money the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com casual that's rocketmoney.com casual rocketmoney.com casual now back to today's episode it seemed like the perfect place to just relax and get away from the hustle and bustle of everyday life. Initially, Marvin took up work at a local muffler shop in the area to make money, then later it opened his own shop. Starting your own business is admirable, but always a risk, yet Marvin seemed to know what he was doing. He opened up several muffler shops in Denver, Boulder, and Granby, and since he was so good at his craft, they all thrived, earning him that sweet, sweet ka-ching. He sounds pretty good at business, to be honest, doesn't he? In the days before the incident, Marvin had started tape recording his thoughts. On the topic of his businesses, he didn't mince words. Quote, you know, if you've got champagne income with a beer keg, you're going to do well. And that's what I've always had. Always believed that that's the way it should be. That's the only way I could get ahead. Yeah, sounds like a very smart and financially prudent man. Like, I always believe this. Like, you should always live below your means. Like, n living beyond your means is something I see all the time. And it's really weird. It's like, oh, no, I bought this. And it's like, yeah, I got a big lease and a big payment and a big debt. And it's like, why? Why? Just buy something that you can afford. <laughs> I say that, and now I realize the hypocrisy because I have a fat mortgage. <laughs> but I don't like I don't buy cars on lease. I don't do anything like crazy. 
With his business flourishing, Marvin built himself a good reputation. He was considered by the other townsfolk of Granby to be the best welder around, someone who could weld or fix just about anything brought to him. And on top of that, many just saw him as an overall great guy. His brother, Ken Heimer, once said that Martin was the kind of guy who would bend over backwards for anyone. He did have a bit of a temper, and he once berated a man for being late for paying for a job, but outside of that, he was seen as a fine, upstanding citizen, a pillar of the community. Marvin sounds awesome! Marvin sounds like the sort of friend that you want. And, like, having a temper's okay. No one's perfect. I've definitely got a little bit of a temper myself. I've got, got rain, it, rain it in. Especially with kids. And I realize I get it from my dad. Because as a kid, I'd be like, my dad's like the super chill guy. But it, like, as a kid, he'd sometimes be like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, yeah. Wonder where I got that from. But I rain it in. I think I'm pretty good at raining it in. I, I, I definitely hide it from my kids quite well. Because I don't want them to see me getting angry. <laughs> In Marvin's own words in the Netflix documentary Tread, I call it successful. I think I was a very poor person most of my life, but for who I was and for what I was, I think I was a very rich man, and I'm thankful to God for giving me that life. Yeah, that's nice. It sounds like he's successful and he appreciates it. I like that. So yeah, Marvin truly seems like an upstanding man. He had his own successful business, he was well-known and liked around town, and he had a large group of friends who thought the world of him, and who would go on weekly snowmobiling trips with. Oh my God, I was just... A I was just going to go snowmobiling. Well, it's planned, like, because it's winter, but it's apparently not winter, or it's like autumn. It's supposed to be like snow, like cold now, but it's like 20 degrees outside. I'm supposed to be going to Iceland in a couple of weeks to go snowmobiling. And the company's like, yeah, there's, there's no snow and the snow ain't coming. So now I've got to find something else to do in Iceland for a weekend. And like, Iceland's really beautiful, but I was going there to go snowmobiling for two days with a mate not to like go sightseeing and now we're going sightseeing which is fine <laughs> but it's like i wanted to go snowmobiling he even had a loving girlfriend named trisha who loved him unconditionally and the couple would go on frequent road trips all over the country he had it all that's how it always starts right no no matt that's not how it always starts normally these shows start with well he was sexually abused by his entire family and friends and teachers and religious people and then he turned out to be a psycho serial killer it doesn't start with everything's brilliant and he had a wonderful life <laughs> this is how it's just starting today matt old marvin was on top of the mountain but he would soon face a series of hardships that would push him over the edge the cracks start to form It all started back in 1992. That year, Marvin was in attendance at a local land auction held by the Resolution Trust Corporation. After spending $42,000, he was able to purchase two acres of land on which he planned to build another muffler shop. The catch? The land had been eyed by the Dochef family, and the resulting conflict was the first of many to come. Now, I know what you must be wondering. Well, who in the hell is the Dochef family? Indeed, I was. Well, imagine one of those big bucks, influential local families you always see as the villains in TV shows and movies, and you've got the basic gist of it. This was a family who was well-known in the area and had a lot of money, mostly because of their concrete business known as Mountain Park Concrete. They had wanted the property because they wanted to expand, and they wished to build a new concrete plant on those two acres. Well, guess what, Dochef family? If you've got so much money, spend $43,000 or whatever the auction is. It's an auction! That's how it's fair. That's how it works. At the auction was Cody Dochef, and with him was Gus Harris, who was the man sponsoring the whole deal. Gus had stated that he was not willing to fund any more than $50,000 for the property, so Cody had put in a bid for $35,000. Then as the price went higher and higher, in came Marvin with his bid of $42,000. And in the end, it was this bid that won the property for him. After the auction was over and the deal was signed, Marvin was confronted in the auction hall by Cody, who, according to Marvin, yelled at him and insulted him for 10 minutes straight for winning the property that he'd wanted so badly. Talk about a sore loser. Yet yeah, also, 
Gus, how about, how about what you do, or Cody or whoever the fuck it was, just bid up to $50,000. You lost an auction. Chill, my dude. It's not like he cheated. He won fair and square. In Marvin's own words, this guy came back there, introduced himself to me, and was, in fact, the rudest, most arrogant person. I mean, this guy's just a f***ing asshole. <laughs> and this is Marvin. He's such a nice guy. And he's like, dick. Come back and just introduced himself by giving me a tongue lashing for about 10 minutes. I mean, this is the only guy of all the properties that sold before his that was doing any screaming at anybody during the auction. It's an auction. I can't hammer this home enough. Have you not been to one of these before? It's where you bid on stuff and then the person who bids the most wins. And if you're not, you have to be like, oh, I didn't bid enough, did I? <laughs> Clown. Now, the Dochefs were an influential family and they had close ties to many within the small town. It's a very tight-knit community, and here's this guy Marvin, perhaps looked at as some sort of outsider to the area, coming in and swiping a bit of land from the well-known Cody Dochef. So when things started to break down and Cody started making his moves, that's when things started to get nasty. Cody sounds like a douchebag, in my opinion, allegedly. It was an old boys' club, and sadly, Marvin wasn't in it, and that was a problem. There wasn't much on the property initially, but Marvin did his best to build his business from the ground up, but he had problems with the property sewage system. Now, I understand that sometimes places don't have the best plumbing, but this place had no plumbing. It had a buried concrete truck barrel where all the nastiness was sent and nothing else, and how something like that was even allowed before Marvin bought the property is beyond me, dude. <laughs> it's just like you take a shit and it goes into like an old truck that's buried underground. What? Now, from what I can tell, Marvin did the right thing after he found this out in that he contacted the sewage district, set up a meeting with the board, and asked if he could get a sewage line put into the property to annex the waste into the proper sewer system. Yes, Marvin, like the good, rational, sensible human being he is. The sewer district agreed to it, but Marvin would have to finance the installation himself. The distance between Marvin's property and the nearest main sewer line was several hundred feet, and to have that built, Marvin would have to pay out of pocket up to $70,000. Good lord. I had this with that, that property with the garage we had that with the gas and the builder was like yo if we dig this up and there's no line there we're gonna have to get the city in and i'm like well that sounds okay isn't that who i pay my taxes to aren't they gonna be like doing that for me and they're like no 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 <laughs> you have to pay for that to get the connection sorted and i'm like oh god and so they dig up the, the concrete or whatever and they're like it's there <laughs> i'm like yes thank you lord I don't think it would have been 70 grand, though. It was just, it was, I don't know, maybe three meters of gas lines or something. But it was going to be expensive, just not that much. Now, even though paying for the line from the property to the main line is standard in the US, Marvin was understandably miffed at the whole situation. Most people would kill for that amount of money, and now he had to spend that much on something he hadn't expected to have to spend money on. It was almost twice the amount of money he had purchased the property for, and he was livid. The board offered to set up a septic tank instead, but Marvin rejected that as well. He thought the board and Ron Thompson... The vice president of the board was out to get him. Sounds like Ron Thompson has been leaned on by our old douchey friend, in my opinion, allegedly Cody. Now, who is Ron Thompson? Or even a better question, who is the Thompson family? Well, they just happen to be a long-standing, well-known, very well-off family in the town of Granby. They owned a lot of land within the town of Granby and made much of their money off the excavation business. In other words, it's just some more of them good old boys trying to stack the deck against old Marv. To quote, I never had anybody sit there and plan to cut me out of an opportunity like the Thompsons did when they denied me access to their sanitation district. It doesn't make any sense other than it was a good old boys patting each other on the back. Had they not done that, I can assure you the outcome, the whole thing, would have been completely different. Gus Harris and Cody Dochef and the powers that be, the Thompsons, if they would have left me alone, I wouldn't have had this righteous anger that I have towards the Thompsons, their hierarchy, their attitude that they have left in that community for so many years. And so many people think like they do. 
screw your neighbor. Yeah, this would be extremely frustrating. Just imagine me in that position where it's like, you can't do that and you know it's corrupt and you know it's just like these big old boy families controlling things and you're like, for fuck's sake, I'm not even asking for that much. It was just because you didn't want to spend $7,000 at an auction. Like, what the hell? Just before we continue with today's episode of the show, I do want to thank our fantastic sponsors and that would be Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the, you know, right at the beginning, I'm thinking about launching a shop online to the, oh, I've got sales to the, oh, now I'm suddenly running a big business. Shopify is there every step of the way. Look, whatever you're selling, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They've got an e-commerce platform. Obviously, I feel that's what they're most known for. But they also do in-person point-of-sale systems. So wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify have got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. Up to 36 better compared to other leading commerce platforms. You can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify magic, your AI-powered all-star. Look, Shopify just make everything better. If you've thought about selling anything online, even if you're selling stuff online now, like I've had, I, I've mentioned it before, I've had a mate who started a store online and it was a nightmare. It cost him like thousands of pounds in like web development and all of this stuff. And then Shopify came along later and he was like, oh man, I wish this was available when I started. And he switched over to Shopify and he was like, oh, that's amazing. This is the best thing ever. It's just easier and cheaper. Perfect. Shopify, thank you. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and they're the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. So, so sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash casual, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash casual now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash casual. The Lawsuits So yes, not off to the best start. Marvin was just trying to live his life, trying to create and run his own business and be his own boss. And he simply pissed off the wrong people, wealthy people who viewed him as someone going against them. And to at least Marv, it seemed like they would do anything to see him fail, all because he took what one of them wanted. Well, in 1998, it didn't get any better. The Dochefs weren't done with Marvin, not by a long shot. Quote, And in 98, the town went and spot zoned the two acres directly south of me, which is illegal in Colorado. And because no one protested it within 30 days, it became the law that they could do that. And this Dochef guy is going to sign and buy the property next door to the west of me and has a contract on it to purchase it. And they were going to be able to put this concrete plant right there next to all those houses downwind of the town. And Cody's motivation was to get back at Marv. Well, I find this out too late, and I was right there in the dust pail of this whole operation, and that wasn't going to work because I didn't want no freaking concrete plant next to me. Quote ends. Now, spot zoning refers to when a piece of property or groups of property have special zone laws applying to them that differ from the zoning laws surrounding them. <laughs> I'm glad that's someone. I'm glad I'm as explaining that because I was like, spot zones, sure, yeah, I know what that is. Let's pretend and continue. Much of the town was initially against it as well, bringing up concerns about the dust that would be blown through the town, the noise it would create, the excess traffic it would generate, and the giant eyesore that the plant would be. The Dochefs weren't worried, though, and they set about convincing the citizens that the plant was a good thing, that measures would be taken against dust and noise, and they presented miniatures of the plant to concerned citizens during the preceding town meetings. The meetings continued until 1999, and that year, with a ton of conditions, the town greenlit the construction of the plant, much to Marvin's consternation. This sounds so corrupt. Marvin's such a... <laughs> I know he's the subject of a casual criminalist episode, he goes on a rampage with a bulldozer. 
But like, I like Marvin. Marvin seems like he's been f***ing screwed by a shitty corrupt system. Marvin was prepared to fight the whole process, but there was another problem. His water and sewage issue had started to raise the ire of the rest of the town, and it got so bad that not only did the concrete truck barrel used for sewage on his property eventually overflow, but the town took him to court over it. He was found in violation at the Granby Municipal Court, and he was given a deferred judgment under the condition that Marvin couldn't use the property for anything, let alone his business, until it was hooked up to the water and sewer system. Dudes, he tried to fix it! He's trying to! So basically, Marvin's livelihood was shut down until he could connect to the sewer line. The problem was, to connect the sewage line, Marvin had to get permission to run a line from his immediate neighbor whose property was located between Marvin's store and the sewage line, Cody Dochef. Do you see the problem here? Of course you do. Cody denied him, and on top of that, the town was giving Marvin a daily fine of $100 until he hooked up his business to the sewer. What the fuck, town? This is so wrong. And $100, like in the 90s, it's got to be, what, at least a couple hundred dollars today. $100 is a lot of money. There's, come on. That's a lot of money, even if it's just for one day, but it quickly escalated into the thousands. It got to the point where Marvin had to cut a check to the town of Granby for $3,351 and purely out of anger and spite, wrote on the memo line, Cowards and Liars Department. They sent it back, not because of the clearly malicious intent, but because the amount was wrong. So yes, Marvin was pissed to high heaven. Between the construction of the plant moving forward to the constant fines regarding the sewer line, it just didn't seem like anyone was listening to him. Nobody cared about what he was going through, and he didn't think it was fair. He saw this as the town treating him as an outsider, as an out-of-towner, someone who came into their space and was trying to make a name for himself, and this was their way of putting him down, putting him in his place. Yeah, I completely agree. I like Marv. I feel bad. This should never have happened. Corruption is just, it just ruins everything. There's like, isn't there that economic argument to be made? Like that in countries that with higher corruption, it's like one of the biggest factors that affects their growth and keeps them poor. It's just like the people in charge stealing the money. And it's like, that's, that's pretty crazy. Did it, wasn't Gaddafi, um, General Gaddafi or whatever his name was. Muammar Muma Gaddafi? The guy who was in charge of Libya for ages. Wasn't he regarded as like one of the richest people in the world because he'd just been stealing money and siphoning it off into his own bank accounts for like decades? And Libya isn't doing brilliantly. So regardless of Marv's problems, everything was moving forward as the town and the Dochevs had planned until Marvin showed up with a lawyer. Just now? Bro, you've been going to court all this time. It's, we're talking thousands of dollars here. You should have had a lawyer way earlier, no? The lawyer went through everything with a fine tooth comb, making sure everything was legal and above board. The construction of the concrete plant was put on hold until it was clear that everything was legally correct, and Marvin even filed a motion in the district court to try and shut everything down. The Dochefs didn't care, though. They wanted their plant built, and they wanted it built now. So despite all the legal matters going on, they simply moved forward as if nothing was wrong, continuing to build the plant while Marvin watched on helplessly. I don't feel like he's helpless. He's got that lawyer. This lawyer should be on it. Get more expensive lawyers. And in the end, it was all for naught. Every single lawsuit that Marvin filed, every single motion he fought for, they were all dismissed. And even when Marvin asked his lawyer to file claims in a higher court, his lawyer refused, knowing that the result would most likely be the same. Thousands of dollars were lost, months upon months were wasted, and at the end of the day, Marvin was left with nothing. He had lost at every turn. He was out a ton of money and had pretty much lost his business, and the town had all but rejected him, and Marvin was convinced that the town council was laughing at him behind his back. You know what I'm remembering about my earlier video? Like, I remember making this previously and thinking Marvin was just a bit mad. Like, that he just was thought there was this conspiracy and stuff. But in I don't remember if that's what it was like. That's my vague memory of it. But in this one, I'm totally on Marvin's side. He was dejected, he was humiliated, he was lost, and he was going to make all those who wronged him paid for it. To quote him again, 
The town had a hard-on for Marv Hemar. They didn't stop and think Marv didn't have any malice towards us. This is a sign to not do this. Though they kept it in their hardened hearts and said, we'll get him. They started getting me in 1992 when they kept me off the sanitation district. They started getting me when Gus Harris sold the property to Cody Dochev. I have to say, this quote was quite confusing because he refers to himself in the third person occasionally. I'm like, wait, isn't this him quoting it? And then he's like, they said this about me, but then he also refers to me as Marv Hemar, which is odd the quote continues they got to me when they issued the building permit to cody dosha for the concrete plants and denied that it was for the concrete plants are we all stupid come on they knew and when i would ask them these questions which you won't find in the minutes they would just shut right up they'd stonewall you they didn't have an answer i'd shoot the truth in their face and they just couldn't deal with it and i'm sorry they're going to have to deal with it i guarantee you i am going to make them deal with it the other side of the coin Now, so far, we've spoken pretty much exclusively from Marvin's point of view, but there are some other people involved in this tale, and much of what they say counter what Marvin had said before and what's recorded on his tapes. For starters, Marvin had stated that when he bought his property at auction, Cody Dochev got in his face and screamed and yelled at him for 10 minutes straight. Not only does Cody deny that this ever took place and that he left as soon as the auction was over, but Gus Harris backs him up. Well, Gus is his man isn't he? Stating they had no altercation with Marvin whatsoever. They simply lost out on that bit of land during the auction, got up, and went about the rest of their day. When Gus discussed the whole thing in the documentary movie Tread, he stuck to his gun saying, Cody has been a good friend for many, many years. We have gone to auctions together before on time, so Cody went with me, but he had no party in the auction. Cody and I sat and listened to another bid or two. There really wasn't much of anything happened. I don't know what Marv did. I wasn't paying any attention to him, really, and then we just got up and left. Yeah, Cody would maybe be interested in the property at a future time, but there was no agreement or talk between us of him owning that property. End quote. So what do we have here? We have Marvin's story, and we have Gus and Cody's story. <laughs> Glad I got in those allegedly earlier. <laughs> One says they helped ruin his life. The others say that they had nothing to do with him, and anything and everything that happened wasn't personal. And hell, everything said about Cody from those who knew him says that he's a good guy. He built his concrete company from the ground up. He was a hard worker, and he sure had a bit of a temper, but he was seen as a friend to many who simply told it like it is. Is this the truth? Perhaps it is, especially since many folks in town, those who weren't emotionally attached to Marvin, like his family and friends, seem to back it up entirely. Okay, I take it all back, Cody. This is... <laughs> Matt did something very clever. He just told me Marvin's story, and I get all on Marvin's side, completely blind to the fact that this is obviously just Marvin's story, because apparently I'm an idiot. He seemed to lash out at everyone and anyone he thought was a problem or crossed him, and it certainly doesn't help his case. Casey Farrell, whom Marv called a barbarian, is a good example. From all reports, you could ask anyone in the town of Granby, and they'd tell you that Casey and his wife were the nicest people around, the kind of people you'd want to live around and be friends with. And yet, Marv hated them. Why? Because Casey was part of the city council that he despised, the group he believed ended out for him, calling him part of the problem. Nothing Casey decided on was out of malice towards Marv. He looked at the plant as an opportunity to grow the community and create jobs. It had nothing to do with screwing over Marv. Someone else Marv had an issue with was Patrick Brower, a local reporter. Patrick had approached Marvin multiple times trying to get his side of the story in the paper, or at the very least run an ad in the paper for his business. Not only was Marv seldom around when he came calling, regardless of the work hours, but Marvin got upset with him for not running his story after he seemed to be avoiding him. 
pretty suspicious. And in the end, Patrick still ran an ad for him in his shop, and Marvin still tore into him, calling him a liar. The Thompsons are another prime example. We spoke briefly about them earlier, particularly how Ron Thompson was on the committee that wanted Marvin to hook up his property to the sewer line. Ron passed away in 2002, but his brothers Larry and Gary were still alive as of 2020. In Granby, they had a great reputation and were seen as hard-working men who earned every dollar of their millions. The grudge Marvin had against the whole Thompson family, particularly Ron and their father Dick, was well documented, and even after the deaths of Dick and Ron, he held on to that, aiming it towards Gary and Larry. In his tapes, Marvin recalled in the spring of 2003 that he confronted Larry at one of his job sites, calling him out and saying that his family had affected his way of life. Marv told him that he owed him and demanded from Larry $300,000. Now, even for a millionaire like Larry, that's still a heavy chunk of change, and Larry rightfully said it wasn't going to happen. I say rightfully because Larry had no quarrel with Marvin. Nothing until that point had ever pointed to the fact that there was any animosity towards Marvin on Larry's part, or from Gary for that matter. To Marvin, though, they were Thompsons, so that instantly made them guilty. It made it right for him to hold his hatred over them. Upon being denied the money he thought was rightfully his, Marvin simply said that he had come to collect, and he promised them that. They recalled that the last time they spoke with Marvin, he was in his truck. When he saw them, he simply rolled his window, called out, I'm going to get you guys, rolled the window back up, and drove away. So no, not threatening at all, I take it all back. And I know I'm getting just the entirely other side of the story now, but this does feel a bit more objective. And it kind of riffs in my head more with what I remember from the previous one about Marv being just a little bit much. So do we see the cracks starting to form in the story here? From everything we were told from Marvin's side, it's a story about a hard-working man who was destroyed by the town he lived in, that it was the evil rich families and corrupt political leaders that had it out for him. But then we have the other side, and it starts to shed a new light on the whole scenario. It shows that if anything bad ever happened to Marvin, there was nothing personal about any of it. It was simply politics and business, and he blew it out of proportion. The price to correct the property to the sewer line? Yeah, it was expensive. But it was a price that everyone, not just Marvin, had to pay to install. Even Cody had to pay for it when he built his concrete plant. It was standard procedure, until things could have been resolved fairly easily had Marv just cooperated. The Dochefs reached out to him, saying they would give him the easement that he needed to get his sewer and water hooked up. Everything would be resolved, and he, all he had to do was drop the insane lawsuits that he had over them and the town as a whole. And what did Marvin do? Well, he hung up on them. Wait, so the Dochefs actually seemed like they were being super reasonable about all this? <laughs> Marvin, why? And even then, Cody and his family seem to just want to settle things and give everyone a happy ending. It's been reported that Cody approached Marvin with an offer to buy him out completely just to settle the issue about the property so that he could build his indoor concrete plant across the road. Marvin agreed, and he set the price at $250,000, six times what he first paid for the property. Cody agreed to the terms, and things looked to be going smoothly. Oh my god, Cody, Marvin, he's just offered you exactly what you asked for, and you're going to deny it, aren't you? It's amazing that he agreed. But then Marvin raised the price. He instantly backed out and said he wanted $375,000. And then when they agreed to pay that, he backed out and demanded a million dollars. Well, this is going to never end then, isn't it? Despite claiming that the Dochefs and the town were at large milking him for money, all the evidence now tells us that that's not what they were doing. It sounds like old Marv here is milking them for money. $250,000. Yes, we'll take it. $375,000. Oh, yes, we'll take it. One million. No. <laughs> Off Marv. The more the layers are stripped away, the more the righteous image of Marv Hemar starts to crumble at the edges. His anger at the imagined slight had simply skewed his view of how the world was, and it was getting worse and worse. Unfortunate incidents became full-blown nightmares. Businesses and job opportunities became imaginary vendettas and grudges against the people around him and the town they lived in, and it only grew worse out of a burning hatred and a poison jealousy. The people around him were becoming successful or continuing to be, despite Marvin. 
and he hated it. It's weird that he's like this way because he's got he's obviously successful in business. He's done a lot of stuff. He's opened many different muffler shops in many different places. He's obviously a clever businessman, and this just seems mental. Like, what are you up to? Why are you doing this? The Preparation Quoting again. When I was sitting in the hot tub, and I mean I was, I was weeping, and a peace came over me where I knew God wanted me to do it. And I didn't understand. I said, why did you ask me to do this? Is that why I've never been married, so I didn't have a family? Is that why I've always been successful, so that I would realize my rewards for doing this task? But it has to be done. And the world will write stories about how wrong I am, and without a doubt I wish it could be done a different way, but there is no way to make this right. You picked on the wrong man, end quote sounds like he's like lost his mind a little wait did are you saying god literally told you to do this and that's the reason like you've never had a family because god's been preparing you for this task to build a killdozer marvin what's going on in your brain it does sound like he lost it at some point because i don't think someone who thinks like this can be super successful because he's incredibly vindictive and petty and all of these things it sounds like something just went wrong in his brain at some point those are Marvin Hemeyer's words, recounting how the inspiration struck him while at home in his hot tub, the inspiration for all the destruction to come. Now I ask you, Simon and our dear audience, does that sound like a sound-minded man to you? <laughs> Already answered that question, Matt. The answer's no. If the answer is no, then we agree. Marvin believed that he had been pushed to the brink and he was truly at wit's end, and he made a decision, a dark decision, in his perceived desperation for fairness and justice. Wait. Is it, why did you ask me to do this? He's asked, God's asking him questions. Like, what's that quote? If you talk to God, that's fine. If, God's, if God talks to you, less fine. <laughs> if the town wanted to screw up his life, then there would be consequences. In 2002, Marvin traveled to California for an auction and bought a Komatsu D355A bulldozer. After loading it onto a flatbed, he had it transported back to Granby, where it sat for about a year or so with a for-sale sign attached to the front. Did he actually intend to sell it at first? Maybe, but he never did, and some people who were close to Marvin believe that he simply bought it for the intimidation factor. In 2003, Marvin put his muffler shop and all it had inside up for auction. Yep, that's right, after all the headaches and heartbreaks to fight for it, Marvin simply sold the property off. Not to the dough chefs, oh heavens no, but to the Trash Co for $425,000, which was ten times the original purchase price. A good chunk of change, and enough to sustain him for a while at least. Perhaps this was a way for him to finally get out and just move on. But no, of course not. Things would only escalate from there. It sounds like, didn't he just buy this a few years ago and he already sold it for a ton more money? Like, <laughs> just take the money and run. What's the problem? Just leave Granby with your fat check and be like, turns out that business move was quite good. Everything that he had was sold off, all beside the bulldozer and the property. Had those been sold, Marv would have simply called it a day and everything that was about to come wouldn't have happened. In fact, Marv said so in his tapes. You know, God had his timing, his plans made out, and it looks like it's going to be because the one thing that I have wanted to do is get caught. I had hoped that somebody would catch me and that this whole thing would stop. And that would be a good sign for me not to do it. And yet, he still had the property, and he still had the bulldozer. With that, he took it as a sign that God simply wanted him to go through with his insane plan. With his mind made up, he got to work. Referring to the bulldozer as the MK tank, or Marv Komatsu tank, Marvin started outfitting his machine. He covered the cabin, engine, and parts of the tracks with one-inch thick, 5,000 psi, quick creek concrete mix sandwiched between sheets of one-half-inch or 1.3-centimeter tool steel, making it impervious to almost anything the police or locals could conjure up. Several video 
cameras were installed on the outside of the machine, and they were protected by three-inch shields of bulletproof Lexan. This was so that Marvin could see what was going on outside the bulldozer, since each camera was connected to several monitors situated on the dashboard inside the vehicle. With fans and air conditioning installed to keep him cool inside, Marvin loaded the dozer with enough food and water to last him a week, along with three handguns that he owned, and he fashioned three gun ports, outfitting them with a 50 caliber rifle, a 308 semi-automatic, and a 22 long rifle. The final feature of note, the hatch by which Marvin would enter his bulldozer was modified so that once he got settled and closed shut, it would never open again. That's right, once closed, he was sealed inside his monster machine forever. He had decided that this would be his last stand. He knew he wasn't getting out of this unscathed, and it seemed he was accepting of this fact. According to Grand County Commissioner Dwayne Daly, once he tipped that lid shut, he knew he wasn't getting out. In his anger, his embarrassment, his desperation, and perhaps his delusion, Marvin Hemeyer created a war machine, his killdozer, and he was going to go on the warpath. To quote again, God built me for this job. I think God will bless me to get the machine done, to drive it, to do the stuff that I have to do. God bless me in advance for the task I'm about to undertake. It is my duty. God has asked me to do this. It is a cross that I'm going to carry, and I'm carrying it in God's name. The Rampage And just like that, we've returned to 4.23pm on June the 4th, 2004, where we started our story. Sealed inside his makeshift tank, Marvin went on his path of destruction. His first target, well, that was going to be the concrete plant, Mountain Park Concrete, that had given him so much grief. At the time, Cody Dochev was the only person present, and he was doing some menial work and screening topsoil at the gravel pit. Marvin wasted no time plowing into the precast shop, causing it to explode. Of course, Marvin and the killdozer itself were unscathed by the explosion, but the police took notice and came as swiftly as possible. Cody was notified over the radio of the attack. Shots were fired by the police, but the bullet simply bounced off the impenetrable hull of the machine. Cody loaded himself into a front-end loader, a machine used for construction and demolition, and went head-to-head -head with a behemoth tank. <laughs> Legend, what are you up to? Some robot wars shit. <laughs> But it was no match for the beast of a machine, prompting Cody to flee while Marvin took shots at him with his 50 caliber rifle. Cody was unharmed, but the plant was destroyed in no time at all, and Marvin was far from done. By this time, word had gotten out, and a local radio announcer went onto the street and broadcast the event live to his listeners. Everyone in Granby knew that Martin Hemeyer had gone cuckoo who was out to destroy all who had wronged him with his infernal machine. And here I must bring up a point that many use to defend Marvin. Some point out that many places of the targeted were swiftly evacuated and say that if they weren't guilty, how would they know they were in danger and they were on Marv's list? And to that I counter this. Marvin wasn't exactly subtle about who he despised and who he believed had wronged him. He was very public about it. He would shout it from the rooftops about how much the town hated him and certain people or businesses within it. So, what do these people, who know Marv hates them, do when it's made known that he's created a war machine and is driving into town? Well, you run away, don't you? Yes, exactly. It's not like you have to be guilty to be afraid. <laughs> it's like, well, I know he hates me. I don't know why, but he does. Making his way down Agate Avenue, Marvin went to his rifle port of the Killdozer and started shooting, targeting nearby power transformers and more worryingly propane tanks. Now, remind me what happens when someone fires a gun at a propane tank and it's punctured. Oh, well, yes, it explodes. Thankfully, none of the tanks were punctured, but that just goes to show Marvin's state of mind. Had those tanks erupted, those whom he hated weren't the only people who would have been hurt. The collateral damage would have been immense. Hell, several police officers and residents of a senior citizen complex were in the immediate blast radius. Now tell me, Marvin, what had they done to deserve that? The answer is absolutely nothing. Cody Dochev wasn't finished, though. Determined to help stop Marvin's rampage, he got inside a scraper that he had on his property. What is a scraper? 
and he had made his way down into town after him. Confronting Marvin, he began bashing into the side of the killdozer, trying to tip it over and stop the insanity. I take everything back I said about Cody. He sounds like a ledge. Unfortunately, it was all in vain. The dozer stood fast, and Marvin simply started taking shots at Cody, as well as taking shots at the police before they could get off shots of their own against the machine. The destruction continued, and it should be noted that several buildings that were destroyed in the carnage were occupied only moments before Marvin Hemer had his way with them. This included the town hall, under which was the town library, where a group of kids had gathered together for a children's program. He even targeted the local Liberty Savings Bank, or more specifically, the corner office, where a woman who was part of the zoning board worked. Plowing through without care, building after building, was either destroyed outright or damaged beyond repair, needing to be demolished afterward. The police were at a total loss. They had nothing that could penetrate the armor of the killdozer. Local and state police did all they could, but to no avail. And even when SWAT was called in, they were utterly useless against the monster machine. Yeah, he's built a tank. They're not equipped with it. Civilians, they just got little guns. It's like pew pew, boom. You need like a RPG or something. It was almost comical to the point where the undersheriff by the name of Glenn Trainer climbed atop the killdozer and rode the damn thing like a bucking bronco at the rodeo, looking for an entry point until he was forced off by falling wreckage. Fearing that the killdozer might start outright going after innocents of the town, and with more than 200 rounds of ammo wasted, it said that Governor Bill Owens considered bringing in the National Guard armed with an Apache attack helicopter with a Hellfire missile or a two-man fire team equipped with a Javelin anti-tank missile to stop Marvin and his monster machine. Yes, that seems very sensible, given that nothing else is working. You need a tank to take out a tank or an attack helicopter. That will also work. The man denies this to this day, but if it's true, it just goes to show how desperate the situation was and how far they'd go to stop this onslaught of insanity. Why would he deny it? That sounds like a really sensible idea. <laughs> the rampage had been going on for two hours straight. The police and their weapons were almost useless, and it looked like nothing would be able to stop it. The killdozer was in many ways like the juggernaut from the X-Men comics, unstoppable once it gets going and near impenetrable on all fronts. Well, at some point it's going to run out of petrol, isn't it? It looked like nothing was going to be able to stop Marvin and his machine of destruction. Nothing except bad luck. Marvin was ready to keep going. He was ready to continue the mayhem and level the whole town if he had to. However, the war machine had actually taken more damage than it appeared. By this time, the engine was leaking a variety of essential fluids and the radiator had been damaged. Either Marvin didn't know that there were problems with his monster or he simply didn't care. He went right up to his next target, the Gamble's Hardware Store. A simple tools and appliance store, it was owned by one of the town board members, which made it a prime target for Marvin's vengeance. Turning the killdozer, he slammed into the corner of the store, intent to see it come crumbling down. And then it happened. You see, there was one thing that Marvin Haymar hadn't planned for, and that was that one of these buildings had a basement. Well, Gambles sure did, and as Marvin blasted into the store, the ground underneath the killdozer gave way and the front treads fell into the basement, trapping the machine. Try as he might, he couldn't move forward, and he couldn't move back. He was stuck tight, and that was that. The machine's momentum finally halted, and the police and SWAT team quickly rushed to try and enter the behemoth. Only a minute later, however, it all truly came to an end. As they closed in at 6.30pm that day, one of the SWAT members thought he heard a loud bang from inside the killdozer. They first attempted to use explosives to get the hatch open, but to no avail. God damn. Could it blow it open? However, as the explosions didn't set off any noticeable booby traps, they brought in an oxyacetylene torch to get the job done. It took several hours, but they were finally able to get the damn thing open, and once inside, they found the aforementioned weeks-long supply of food and water, the guns, and the remains of Marvin Hemar. Why did he have a weeks-long supply of food? Like, what are you thinking you're going to do? Just camp out in it afterwards? They're just going to cut that open, even if you're alive in there. Or they're just going to wait you out, and eventually you'll run out of food and water. What did you think was going to happen? You'll run out of petrol. Are you just going to sit inside the tank all the, for like a week? And then what? And they find the remains of Marvin Hemar. Having seen no way out, and with his rampage of revenge foiled, 
It doesn't sound like it was that foils. It sounded like it did quite a thing. Marvin gave up, taking one of the 357 caliber handguns he'd brought with him in hand. He ended his own life. Marvin Hemar was no more, dead at the age of 52. Wrap up. And just like that, our story's at an end. The curtains close with the death of our protagonist, or antagonist as it were. And you see, therein lies the real question, doesn't it? Was Marvin a hero, or was he a madman, an anti-hero, or a supervillain? Well, it depends on which side you believe, I guess, and which side you approach the case from. Yeah, like Simon at first, I was like, yeah, 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 definitely, he's a good guy. And then I was like, oh no, Cody's the good guy. Now I'll say this, as everyday folk, it's easy for us to side with Marvin right out of the gate. His story, or at least the version that he told, is a man standing up against the man, and that the town around him shunned and ruined him at the behest of the rich and powerful. People with money and influence, they're bad, right? Well, sometimes that's not actually the case. And at the end of the day, it's not about justice, it's not about payback, since those things simply don't matter. All that matters is the truth. After going over the case multiple times over and doing my best to look at it with an objective eye, my conclusion is thus. The truth of the matter is that Marvin Hemar was a good man, especially to those he loved, but once he believed that someone was out to get him, he let his anger and his paranoia consume him utterly. Whether it was Cody Dochev, the Thompsons, the town council, the police, or anyone he viewed had any sort of encroachment on his livelihood or his property, instantly became his sworn enemy. His mind slowly but surely became more and more consumed by the darkness, and because of that, he created a machine of destruction, one that would trample his enemies underfoot and ruin their lives as he felt they had ruined his. And when it was over, he ended his life unwilling to face the consequences of his actions, as he wished others to face their own. And as for the people who claim he was in the right, and as his life was the only one that ended that day, I counter with this. It wasn't intentional. It was simply good luck and proper police procedure that saved those lives. People were at work. People were in school. People were out and about enjoying their usual day until this man decided to crush all of it. He shot at the police. He shot at propane tanks. And he ran over everything in his path. The fact this man didn't end up a murderer isn't from any of his own doing. It was a miracle. The town did its best to come together and rebuild after all was said and done. Many of the buildings had been damaged or flat-out destroyed, including the town hall, and with that, many of the town archives and records had also been ruined. In total, the damage caused by the incident racked up $7 million. After the attack, Marvin's home was searched, and all of his audio tapes and notes leading up to the rampage were found, explaining his motivations in fair detail, or his version of the story at least. The killdozer itself was torn apart and sold as scrap, as the town council thought it would become an attraction if left as is. Yeah, they're probably right. I'd like to see that. <laughs> but also grim. And with that, I'll leave you all with this. I'm glad the town is prospering once again, and to those affected during the attack, I wish you nothing but the best in a lifetime of continued happiness. And as for Marvin, despite the fact that I feel he's in the wrong, I do still feel sorry for him. Undoubtedly, his life was affected by the events that transpired, even if it was never some conspiracy against him as he thought. He simply wanted to live his life, and the continuing changes to the circumstances of his life got the best of his mind, so he lashed out in an attempt to finally have some control over his life once more, even if it was simply the end of it. So rest in peace, Marvin Hemar. Although your final years were turbulent, I hope that wherever you ended up, you finally found the peace that you were lacking. Yes. What a weird episode. What a weird situation. That's where we end today's Casual Criminals. Thank you so much for being here.
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.